0: Praised be he will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, sigh of relief. This has been a week dominated by one weather event with wildly different outcomes for different people. In the Caribbean, Irma brought utter devastation. Throughout Florida, Irma produced a wide range of experiences from from loss of life to simply, well, I'm glad that's over. From being on one side of the street where there was no loss of power to being on the other side of the street where it's a week later and you're still waiting for power. For almost everybody I've talked with, there's one common factor. It's been a wearying week. We're tired. For many, it's also been a week of learning new lessons in the main theme of all of today's passages, forgiveness. One way to define forgiveness, well, the root is literally go away, and the idea is something like to let go. One way to define forgiveness or to think of it is giving up the right to judge. Now, that can be as basic as recognizing something about our relationship with God. That as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, look, God shines the sun on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. That means when either the sun or the rain is extreme, we have to give up the right to figure out exactly why and instead seize the opportunity which is the point in Jesus' mentioning of the rain and the sun in the Sermon on the Mount, to show an indiscriminate love. Love for neighbor, love for enemies. In this past week, forgiveness for me was as basic as refusing to be envious of my neighbor whose power came up before mine. And instead, gratefully accepting his gracious offer of the small generator he didn't need anymore. I don't know what your experience has been, but it's been heartening to see neighbors come out and like actually introduce themselves to each other, shake hands and say, how you doing? Can I help? It's been heartening to see expressions of neighborliness around me, throughout Central Florida, among you. But as I said before, one common factor is weariness, and I will try hard not to add to your weariness this morning. I want to offer two main observations from our text, and because I'm a professor, I've got to add some subtext in there as well. First main observation— Scripture's whole story is a story of forgiveness, of letting go, of our giving up the right to demand repayment when we've been wronged, and letting go of the need sometimes for answers to injustices, to let go of the need for an answer to every injustice that we see or experience. And we can do that for two basic reasons. We can let go in the first place because of a certain perspective that we are given as joseph maintains in genesis 15 genesis 50 we do ultimately believe don't we that every wrong will prove itself at the end of the long day of history's story to have behind it the hand of a kind and all-powerful god who is working a good purpose I don't have to have all the answers because I know the one who does. Others may intend evil for me, but God intends even their evil for good. Maybe just my having a share in Christ's sufferings, and that's no small thing. And maybe it's my being like Joseph in a position to bring comfort, relief, even rescue to others. A second reason that we can join Scripture's larger story about letting go has to do with proportion. Jesus would have us understand that there is a huge gap between what we are asked to forgive and what God forgives. In our parable, the debt that the master forgives is laughably high. Students of, 21st, uh, students of first century economics say that in all of Palestine, there were not 10,000 talents of wealth. The figure is hyperbolic. And Jesus' audience would have laughed when he said that the man would be put in prison until he paid the debt off. 10,000 talents. One talent is about 20 years of most people's wages. Do the math. Never going to pay that off. And you're just supposed to say, oh, this guy's got like, he's worked built up like the national debt. Well, if our nation is never going to pay off its debt, and let's not go there, actually, an individual who owes that much is, is not, doesn't have a chance, especially if you put him in jail. What he in turn was owed wasn't insignificant. It was about three months' wages, but it wasn't going to make or break him. He could afford to let it go. I don't know what mistreatment or abuse or even violence you may have experienced. And I would never presume to minimize it and baldly say that anything owed to you is nothing compared to what you owe to God. I will say this, though. Whatever wrong you have done has been covered by the cross. And that matters when you think about what others have done wrong to you. Of all the gospel writers, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but of all the gospel writers, it is Matthew alone in whose gospel Jesus is most demanding about our forgiving others. It's, Jesus, it's, it's in Matthew alone that Jesus' words at the institution of the Lord's Supper Include when he's talking about the wine, that this is for the forgiveness of sins. Praise be, because Jesus has poured out his blood as a sin offering. What the psalmist yearned for is really true. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He has not always accused and he has not kept his anger forever and he has not dealt with us according to our sins nor repaid us according to our iniquities. There are only a few things that I am absolutely certain about in life and this is one of them. Drinking the wine of bitterness over wrongs done to me is fatally toxic. Its only antidote is the wine of the healing, forgiving blood of Christ. No matter the evil done to me, and I would dare say this to you, no matter the evil done to you, the wine of Christ's forgiveness has the power and the only power to kill the poison. It does so by giving me, by giving you the ability to give the wrong over to God and even to ask for the wrongdoer, a mercy not unlike the mercy that I myself and you yourself have come to know. A second main observation. Now I want to go over to the letter to the Romans. Where Scripture's whole story of forgiveness is put on display for the world is in you and me, in the church. For 11 chapters, Paul ponders the amazing mercies of God to sinners. And then in chapters 12 through 16, he builds to a climax. He's writing to scattered individuals and in house churches in the most powerful city on the planet. A city that holds a vast empire together by the power of its military, the efficiency of its transportation network, and over time, the working out of one of the most sophisticated systems of justice the world has ever seen to believers in this city hunkered down in little prayer groups as they are, Paul dares to declare that the true power lies not in the imperial courts, but in the good news of God's gift of his royal son, Jesus' death to reclaim sinners from the enslavement of sin, and his return from the dead to lead those he has rescued into newness of life and the glory that is everlasting. He further dares to declare that the most exquisite expression of justice ever lies in the way the just God has justly judged our sins in the person of his son And done so in such a way that he can justly declare unjust sinners just before his bar of justice. God, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 26, is just and justifier. Once again, praised be from Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities for as the heavens Are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. Chapters 1 through 11 contemplating that astounding mercy. And then in chapters 12 through 15, Paul provides a stunning vision of what these justified sinners as what we have since come to confess to be one holy Catholic and apostolic church. What we offer the world as proof of God's power and justice. We are called to be and gifted to be a people who offer our bodies as living sacrifices, who with renewed minds do not count ourselves more important than we ought, who revel revel in the oneness that is expressed precisely in the differences of our giftedness, who compete with one another only in the showing of honor to one another who share the burdens of our Christian and non-Christian neighbors, who refuse vengeance but overcome evil with good, who pay taxes and show respect for authorities who keep peace. And then almost as though Paul anticipated that his one holy Catholic church, a community of justified sinners, Would need these words. He says, Welcome one another, and not just so you can argue with each other. It's almost as though he anticipated that this community of justified sinners would include predestinarians and free willers, high church worshipers and low, those who dunk and only adults, and those who sprinkle even their babies, memorialists and sacramentalists, progressives and traditionalists. And so in this letter, Paul takes up one last issue, how to stay at one table when you're not quite sure about some of the people who are at the table. Some of us Watch Paul's language carefully. Some of us, Paul says, are tempted to despise others because they're not progressive enough. Oh, you're hung up on that? Oh, get over it. They despise because, in their perception, the non-progressives haven't seen the full implications of Christ's coming. For the created goodness of all food and drink and the equal holiness of all days... Others of us are tempted to judge others because they're not conservative conservative enough. You go that route and you're on a slippery slope and you're going to be in trouble. Some of us are tempted to judge because we perceive the non-conservatives as not respecting the connotations to pagans of eating things sacrificed to pagan gods. And We don't think that they understand the symbolic power of setting aside one day to consecrate the whole of time. The body of Christ, as Paul sees it, is comprised of bolder consciences and more conscience and more cautious consciences. And it seems like he thinks we need each other and that the body of Christ receives fuller expression for our welcoming one another to the table. Forgiveness here means giving up our expectations of what a community of justified sinners, what one holy Catholic and apostolic church has to look like. So much more needs to be said than I can say at a brief homily. Over time, let us, let us please work together to figure out how to say what needs to be said and how to live this out. Paul tells us to welcome one another as Jesus has welcomed us. And in doing so, he would have us, I think, do at least two things. One, believe the best for and about one another. He says every person's going to stand and give account. And then, remarkably, he says, the Lord will enable them to stand. Verse 4. People who believe the best for one another. For God will enable them to stand. And second, He says, each one of us will be held to account, each one. And that means each of us has a real high responsibility to work, study, converse with one another, and pray towards the most responsible positions we can attain. For each of us, he says in the last verse of today's passage, will be accountable to God. And then as he says later in verse 22, the faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. I don't think there's a better way to close a mini-series on Paul's letter to the Romans than to go to a passage toward the end of chapter 16 where Paul offers his own doxology to the Lord. Now to God who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but is now disclosed and through the prophetic writings is made known to all the nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Standing together now, let us confess this faith that we seek to obey using the words of the Nicene Creed, page 358 in the Book of Common Prayer. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God,